Trevor Halpern, the 200 Brass, I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance as the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And what follows, uh, as he does every week, Dave Cameron attempts to analyze all baseball. Of particular interest to those who would like to see baseball analyzed is the fact that not only has the regular season ended, but the postseason is about to begin. Much of the conversation that follows concerns that postseason. Brief look at World Series odds, and also what strategies managers might use in the wild card game to best improve their chances of victory. I mean, I think in an elimination game, uh, you know, the rules should go out the window in a sense. Uh, James Shields shouldn't pitch more than five innings. He maybe shouldn't pitch more than four. Finally, a brief but decidedly obligatory conversation about Derek Jeter. It is Fangraphs Audio. It features managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. I guess since the All-Star break at some point, in which there's not been a Major League Baseball game? Uh, yeah, I think that is true. That's true, yeah. 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 But uh, serious baseball is about to start. Uh, yeah. I want to tell you something, Dave, and uh, it's possible you don't care. Okay. Um, but I uh, have found myself uh, unwittingly, uh, or for reasons I cannot quite explain, excited about this year's playoffs. Uh, that's strange for you. It is strange for me. It's not strange for people who are generally fans. I don't know why it's happening, but I like, for some reason, I'm, I like the, the, uh, the condensation of, uh, so many possibilities into such a, relatively speaking, short amount of time. See, I would have thought, like, you were going to spend this entire month celebrating Corey Kluber. Well, Corey Kluber or, uh, or making observations, un- uninformed observations about the Arizona Fall League. Right. Yeah. These these seems like more Sestouli type endeavors. Well, maybe I'll do that too. But I will be uh, sitting down watching either with or without uh, the company of other people, and I will watch uh, baseball games. Are you going to do live blogs? Ooh. Yeah. If people want that, I don't know. I think that they get enough of this. <laughs> but if, <laughs> but uh, if you want me to, I will. And I don't. I don't mind doing them. But I do remember. I think you did one last year. I, if I if memory serves correctly, and mm-hmm. then when it ended, people were like, "Hey, can we have the real analysts back?" Yeah, I think they said yeah. something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, sorry, I just took a bite of a pastrami sandwich. It's always good radio or podcasting. Yeah, it is great. Eating while you're asking questions. I want to ask a question. What do we know? Um, I forget who conducted the research originally, but I, I believe it first appeared at the Harbaugh Times. It might have been Studes who did it. Dave Studman. Uh, who did work on uh, see, uh, leverage relative to season as opposed to um, merely a single game. Yeah, it's called championship leverage index. Ch- championship. Champ- championship probability added. I guess. And so what does that look like for the wild card games? Because I, if you lose that game, you lose the whole right. season. Yeah, so uh, basically, as you'd expect, you know, championship probability goes up as you get closer to the World Series. I think the obviously the wild card games are of uh, tantamount importance in that if you lose, you're out. But they only add so much because even if you win, you're still not likely to win the World Series. You're a wild card 
for a reason, first of all. Right. And now you've put yourself at a disadvantage for the first round uh, because you had to play an extra game and burn one of your better starters. Or in the Pirates' case, you had to burn it. It's in Volquez. Uh, and so I think uh, it's not the, going to be the most important game of the postseason, even though it is the first elimination game. Right. It's it's important, and also thing other things are important as well. That that can be true. Yes, it is yeah. one of many important games that will happen in Knoxville. Well, you got to win enough. Right. Of you got to win uh, twelve, I guess, if you're yeah. a wild card team. Eleven, if you're not. Right. And uh, well, so interesting to mention that because we uh, the Oakland Athletics are in a bit of a unique position uh, insofar as they did not uh, do a good job winning games in September. Or really the second half. The second half. But, and yet, uh, if I'm not mistaken, their rest of season win percentages have remained high despite their poor play. Or at least I should say their poor winning percentage. Yeah, I mean, I think the Angel, or the, the A's are a, a fascinating example of, of how you evaluate a team. So if you, uh, and I think most kind of traditional baseball media uh, or baseball fans will fall into the category of just evaluating a team by their record and their recent performance. This is kind of the two ways of talking about a team generally, is how have they done in wins and losses, and how have they done over the last month or six weeks or three weeks or a week sometimes. Uh, and the A's, by both of those uh, measures, don't come out so hot. Uh, their second half collapse dropped them uh, into the fifth best record in the American League, and they've been uh, below 500 teams since the All-Star break. I think they're 29 and 38. Uh, which which suggests how good they were, or at least how uh, how good their record was before the break. Right. The fact that they were able to make the playoffs while playing 450 ball in the second half tells you that they were a beast in the first half. But people just stopped caring about the first half and the second half to a large degree. Uh, and we'll say, you know, well, we haven't seen the A's play like a great team for two months, so we're going to assume that that team is gone you see all kinds of stories out there about the UNS Cespedes trade, you know, ruined their lineup, even though UNS Cespedes isn't a very good hitter, and John Lester has clearly performed better than Cespedes in the second half of the season. Uh, and, you know, talk about how the, the team was, you know, uh, dramatically overperforming in the first half and how they've regressed to the mean, and this is more their true performance. The team was overperforming in the first half, but we shouldn't throw away their first half performance in which they were the best team in baseball. Uh, and I think if you look at kind of the underlying peripherals such as like their base runs expected record um that the a's still stack up as one of the four or five best teams in baseball and and going into the postseason uh look like a a decent chance to to go deep even though they've played terribly and even though they have to go to kansas city and win one game tomorrow if they win that game they might have as good odds as anyone else in the american league of winning the world series which sounds counterintuitive considering how they've played the last couple months Right, and uh, and no, no, you you noted that there's of course an inherent disadvantage to winning the wild card because, so they play Wednesday. No, they pl- they, they play, play tomorrow. tomorrow yeah. Oakland plays tomorrow, which means the uh, and so do we? Do you know uh, when their AL uh, DS series would begin? I recognize I'm Thir- putting you Thursday, on the spot. Yeah. No, oh, so there's a, there's a day off between the wild card game and the start of the division series. Okay, right. So uh, John Lester's not going to be starting that game. Uh, they have uh, were they to to beat Kansas City, however, they would still have uh, other reasonably talented pitchers. For example, Jeff Samarjo, uh, one of the best of those in the majors, maybe top ten. Hmm? Yeah, uh, I don't know that Samarjo is a top ten major league pitcher, but he's good. Uh, maybe top twenty five. Uh, oh, I mean, you know, Samarjo's a, a good pitcher, uh, and you know. Um, 
probably better than anything the Orioles have, for instance. Uh, so, you know, nothing wrong with Jeff Smart's ship, but uh, top 10 maybe uh, a little too strong there, Carson. Okay, so now uh, with regard to those Orioles, now I'm not going to cover every – I'm not going to ask you to, to talk about every playoff team. With regard to those Orioles, uh, it, it seems to me as though uh, starting pitching is not the strength of the club. Is that true? That is true. Although they are the kind of rotation that doesn't have any glaring weak spots. So they're, and you know, this is kind of the kind of rotation that often gets a little underrated in October. They don't have an ace. They don't have anything that looks like an ace. But they have, you know, a handful of guys who aren't terrible. Okay. Uh, but it also seems like uh, as you go into the playoffs, a team, um, I don't know. Well, maybe maybe the Orioles don't fit this perfectly, but there would be some there'd be some competitive advantage to having to having a good team without necessarily a great pitching staff because you can leverage your pitchers in a different way in a shorter series. So it will depend on Buck Walter's willingness to go to the bullpen. People talk about the lack of a dominant front end starter as a significant weakness. If you have the manager who has the guts to realize that his bullpen is more effective than his starters, it can actually be an advantage. Because if Showalter says, you know what, Wei-Yin Chen is not Clayton Kershaw, and Chris Tillman is not Felix Hernandez, I'm going to get them out after, you know, four innings or five innings, and I'm going to go to my bullpen and I'm going to ride relievers and I'm going to play the matchups. Uh, you can get better performance from your relievers in October than you can from even the best starting pitchers. And so if Showalter is aggressive with his bullpen management and says, you know, these starters don't have the cachet to say, I want the ball until my arm falls off. I'm going to take them out, you know, as soon as possible, essentially, and only let them face hitters once or twice through the through the order. Uh, the Orioles could actually be a team uh, to to contend with. I mean, you know, they're obviously a team to contend with, and they made the playoffs. But they could be better than people would expect, given their rotation. Do you have a sense if Showalter or, uh, has suggested something like that, or if any other manager has hinted at perhaps – uh, managing in, in a, a more aggressive style um, uh, above and beyond what we've maybe seen in the past. So they won't, usually won't talk about their plans ahead of time. They're not going to give away their strategy. I believe a couple of years ago when the Orioles uh, had a had a wild card game against the Rangers, I, I could be making all this up, but I think Joe Saunders started that game. Uh, and, you know, Joe Saunders not very good. Uh, not certainly not the pitcher you want on the hill in an right. elimination game and pitched much better than we would expect, and Showalter stuck with him for not an unreasonably long period of time, but longer than you would want to stick with Joe Saunders in a your season is on the line kind of game. Right. Uh, so I don't know that we have a lot of evidence that Showalter is going to be aggressive, but he has the opportunity to do so in a way that will not get him so much criticism as if, you know, like Brad Osmus, for example, his bullpen is bad, his starting rotation is good. He's going to ride David Price until his arm falls off this October. I think there's a good chance that David Price is going to throw 130 pitches a game. Uh, and his playoff starts. Showalter doesn't need to do that because he doesn't have David Price. Right. And uh, are there pitchers who have? Because I know that there's there's a pretty regular deterioration uh, per X number of times through the lineup. Yeah. I, I feel like, uh, and this could be anecdotal, like uh, Justin Verlander historically has not demonstrated that same sort of deterioration, or perhaps uh, he's just so good that first time through the lineup that by the third time he's still pitching like an average pitcher, or this this previous version of Justin Verlander. So there are certainly are pitchers who decline less uh, the more they pitch into a game and the more times they face a hitter within the same game. Uh, Verlander, I think, historically has been one of these guys. Kershaw, uh, the, the very elite pitchers 
are very elite pitchers because they don't wear down throughout the game. Uh, it's one of the hallmarks of what makes them great. But they still do get worse. I mean, even the best pitchers you can find uh, a time through the order penalty by, by the third time through the order, a great number one starter is only as good as a, you know, quality setup guy. So if you're in the seventh inning of a close game and you're saying, you know, I've got this pitcher who's, you know, a number one legitimate Cy Young type pitcher, uh, and I have this, you know, good setup guy who's, uh, you know, uh, not necessarily the best reliever in baseball, but a, a good quality setup guy, uh, the choice between them is going to basically be a coin flip. And for any starter that isn't Kershaw or Verlander or one of these number one type starters, the reliever is almost always going to be better. So in the case of the Tigers, uh, not only are we probably not going to see Osmus going to his bullpen very quickly, but uh, given the quality of that bullpen, that might be the right choice, or at least the close to, closer to right choice than than if another manager wrote a wrote a you know a talented starter uh, deep into the in the, in, uh, the in a game. So yes and no. So I'll say it's going to be more right than like Ned Yost is maybe the guy who's going to be the, on the biggest hot spot. Uh, and tomorrow I think is going to be an interesting test of of Yost's managerial chutzpah in that you know he has a pitcher named. Nicknamed Big Game James mm-hmm. because because his name is James and it rhymes. Is with that game. on his birth certificate, Big Game James? I, I think when he came out, they were like, "What rhymes with James? <laughs> Big Game." And so, uh, right. So they have a pitcher whose nickname suggests this is the guy you want on the mound in an elimination game. They also have you know Wade Davis and Kelvin Herrera and Greg Holland who should be pitching a minimum of three innings, and you could argue maybe four or five. Maybe you should try and get two each from from Herrera and Davis before you get to Holland, and maybe you should try and get two from Holland. I mean, I think in an elimination game, uh, you know, the rules should go out the window, in, in a sense. Uh, James Shields shouldn't pitch more than five innings. He maybe shouldn't pitch more than four. Uh, I don't think Yost is going to manage that way, but uh, I do think it will be an interesting test. For Osmus, I think he's going to be somewhat justified in writing his starters longer, but also unjustified in how he's used his bullpen uh, because he does actually have weapons. The team traded for Joe Kim Soria, who's quite good. They haven't used him at all because they're sticking with Joe Nathan as their closer inexplicably. And now they have Anibal Sanchez, who's back from the disabled list and is going to be used out of the bullpen in the playoffs. Oh, that's uh, good. That's a good thing to have. But we don't know that, right? This is, we don't know mm. what Brad Osmus is going to do with Anibal Sanchez. He could very easily say, this is a guy who's going to take you know, several innings to warm up. He's used to a starter's routine. I can't use him to, you know, come in with guys on base. He's not used to that. He needs to start an inning. So he's going to, he, I, I'm going to assume, and I could be wrong, Brad Osmus, you have a chance to prove me wrong. I think he's going to use Anibal Sanchez as a long reliever. And if one of his starters gets in trouble in the third or fourth or fifth inning, then he'll get Sanchez up and say, okay, in a couple of innings, I'm going to bring in Sanchez in order to pitch the middle and try to get me to Java Chamberlain and Joe Nathan and where his eighth and ninth inning guys rather than saying, you know what, it's the sixth inning, I need three outs, and Audible Sanchez is my best reliever, I'm going to go get him for these innings. I don't think Austin's is going to do that. What percentage of, I mean, what is what is Sanchez, like a number two starter, number three starter? Like yeah, a, Probably a, a good number three or a, a solid number two. Okay, so let's say solid number two starters, or yeah. solid number two or three, you know, whatever you just said. Uh, what percentage of them uh, would be... Would be a team's best reliever uh, if they were moved to the bullpen. Ninety-five percent. Okay, right. Because they're there because they're so good at getting people out. Right. Yeah. I mean, generally, the if you're going to be that good of a starter, your big advantage is you're not going to have a platoon weakness. Uh, so right. you can you can pitch multiple innings and you don't have to be taken out for a lefty or a righty. 
Right. Uh, you, briefly, you mentioned the other play-in game. That's what, uh, Pittsburgh and San Francisco? Yes. And uh, Pittsburgh is throwing Edison Volquez, what, because they have to? Is that the idea? No. That's kind of the interesting thing. I think I'm going to be writing about this tomorrow or maybe Wednesday because the game's on Wednesday. Uh, and I know Mike Petriello is writing about Edison Volquez for today, and that post should be up probably by the time this podcast goes up. Uh but it's a kind of an interesting question of, like, they threw Garrett Cole yesterday in the season finale in order to get them into the playoffs. Uh, but, you know, they didn't necessarily have to throw Garrett Cole to get into the playoffs. Uh, there was, um, uh, essentially, they were already in. They were trying to win the division, is what I'm, I'm poorly saying. Uh, they were trying to run down St. Louis, and it didn't happen. Uh, and so now they've burned Garrett Cole, who's probably a better pitcher than Edison Volquez. Uh, and so I think Volquez was, uh, is a little bit of a controversial pick and that he's pitched well lately and he has good stuff, but his historical record is terrible. He has not held left-handed hitters down through much of his career. Uh, and you're betting kind of on 2014 and more specifically on tw- second half 2014 Edmondson Volquez versus the history of what Volquez has been. On the other hand, the Pirates have been really good at turning garbage pitchers into really good pitchers and their defense is aligned well based on kind of their matchups and, and the way they get ground balls and align their defense. And so it might work, but I don't know that you would have said at the beginning of the season that you wanted Edmondson Volquez starting a, a playoff game for you, especially when you have Francisco Liriano and Garrett Cole and, you know, better pitchers than Edmondson Volquez. And I, and I think maybe I'm a little bit more forgiving you. You referred to Edmondson Volquez, well, uh, inadvertently as a garbage pitcher. He's, uh, I think he's a pitcher with uh, tantalizing well, arm speed and movement who has not been demonstrated a particular ability to command it over the yeah, course of his I, career. I don't actually remember calling him a garbage pitcher. Can you rewind the tape? I know. I said you said the Pirates who are good at turning garbage pitchers into okay. – all right. So, so I say inadvertently, implicitly you're saying right. this about – uh, so I would say the Pirates are good at taking pitchers with good stuff and bad command and turning them into – better pitchers. Yeah. And, you know, this is basically, is basically Francisco Liriano 2.0, and they did this last year with Liriano, yeah. except that Liriano was legitimately dominant all season, whereas Volquez just has a low ERA in part because of the Pirates' defense. And also, it should be said, Liriano had been Correct. crazy dominant. At Liriano had point. basically been a Cy Young pitcher before previous arm injuries, and he got his velocity right. back. Like, it was a lot easier to buy into 2013 Liriano than it is 2014 Volquez. Right. And... Uh... Uh, so they, and then uh, I guess what they they play the Giants. They do. Who will throw which pitcher? Madison Bumgarner. Oh, he's good. An actual good pitcher. Yeah, yeah he's really good. He is. Uh, yes, he's probably about as good as James Shields. So mm-hmm. we could call him. Uh, I don't know. Is there a word that rhymes that like has a clutch meaning? That How about uh, not bad, Madison Bumgarner? Days at the Radisson Madison? No, I don't think that's good. You sound like you're underwater again, Dave. What, do you uh, have your hand on your... There you go. Sorry. Yeah, you sound better. Uh, uh, okay, so he's good now. Now, are the same... Uh, is Bruce Bochy going to be dealing with the same sort of decisions that we think Ned Yost might have to? Uh, or or will, would have to? Is this another case of, uh, of uh, managerial chutzpah at work? Well, I think the Giants don't have the Royals bullpen. And uh, Bumgarner against uh, the Pirates is an interesting matchup, and the, the Pirates actually have a very good offense. Uh, people don't realize this, I think, but they actually do, uh, especially with Andrew McC- McCutcheon and Starling Marte and Russell Martin. They've got some good right-handed hitters. Uh, so 
it's going to be a little bit of a of a a chess match for Bruce Bochy to decide when to remove Bumgarner. The X factor in all of this might actually be Bumgarner's hitting. Uh, as we saw, I think, in Bumgarner's last start, uh, he was, you know, he, I think he had a home run against the Dodgers. Uh, it was his fourth home run of the year. He's now slugging like 550 on the season or something. Uh, he's has like a 130 WRC plus. Uh, at the plate, Bumgarner has been a very good hitter this year, but he's still a pitcher and he's not actually a good hitter. He's just had, you know, whatever, 75 good at bats. Uh, there's some chance that Bochi will say, you know, I'm going to leave Bumgarner in a little bit longer because I'm not going to aggressively pinch hit for my pitcher because I have a good hitting pitcher. Uh, when in the postseason, you almost never want your pitcher to hit in a crucial situation if you don't have to. I mean, this is one of the kind of the rules of the postseason. I mean, if you were to follow uh, just by, straight by the book and say, I'm just going to set guidelines for myself and, and follow them regardless, pinch hitting for your pitcher with men on base in a close game should be one of those rules you follow and you do just fine as a manager, uh, even if you screwed up a lot of other things because taking out a pitcher and replacing the position player is about as large an upgrade as you can get in baseball. Well, you, uh, so you uh, provided a link at Instagrafts today, uh, to a piece that Ben Lindbergh had written at Grantland. Correct. And, uh, which addressed some popular myths with regard to the postseason, um, the, 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 the import of uh, recent performance, it doesn't matter a lot. Uh, ex- playoff experience does not seem to matter a lot. This is all borne out empirically. Uh, yep. Pitching uh, does not necessarily win championships. If better pitching is 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 good than bad yep. pitching. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's best to have all of the good things if you can. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I assume that one, one thing that will – I would say I, I'm not as sensitive to it, but uh, certainly – uh, talking with my colleagues of Fangraphs and uh, having some, uh, you know, uh, reading reactions uh, via the social media site Twitter, uh, we we might see uh, some bunts that make uh, the sabermetrically oriented fan angry during the postseason. This seems likely, and I, would, I suspect tomorrow Ned Yost will probably bunt more than he should. I think we've seen over the last couple of weeks of the season he's been kind of a little bit of a bunting fool. There was a series against Detroit maybe a couple of weekends ago where he was bunting regularly in the early innings of games and not getting any runs out of it, and uh, Twitter was, was going bananas at the Ned Yost bunt fest. I would expect against John Lester tomorrow he's probably going to bunt almost every time he gets a runner on first with nobody out. Uh, thinking that he only needs a run or two with Shields in his bullpen uh, in order to try and win the game. There is some logic to this argument of uh, facing a, a pitcher who's very good. You shouldn't expect to piece together three or four hits or in extra base hits in order to score a bunch of runs. And with James Shields in a pitcher's park and then the Royals' bullpen and hopefully aggressive bullpen management, the Royals should think if we can score three or four runs, we can win this game. Right. The problem is... Bunting doesn't actually help you score that many more runs. So, uh, yeah, I would expect that we're going to see a lot of bunts, probably too many. doesn't mean the bunt is always the wrong call, uh, especially if you're bunting for a hit. I think the one of the key clarifications that we have not done a good job of making is that there's a big difference between trying to bunt your way on base and just giving up an out. If you have a, a speedy hitter who's not a good hitter at the plate, and he's a good bunter, and he can you know, maybe 10, 15, 20% of the time get himself on base through the bunt, then the bunt is a significantly better bet than if you just assume that it's going to be a sacrifice 100% of the time. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, also should be noted that if any team is, um, or that probably no team, certainly in the playoffs, is less likely to record an extra base hit than than the Royals, who I think, what, they recorded not just the lowest home run total in the majors this year, but maybe the lowest home run for a while. 
Los Hermanos Tobel for a while, or maybe for a team that qualified for the playoffs? Yeah, they are a weak team that makes a lot of contact, and and their offense is based around slapping the other singles. Right, and then uh, their which, defense is is based around being really good. Yes, right. Yeah. They're they're good because of their run prevention, not because of their offense. Mm-hmm. And so, if you have that kind of team, that's the kind of team where bunting more makes more sense. But bunting more and bunting the Ned Yost more is not the same thing. Okay. All right. Uh, so those are the playoffs. Well, uh, I mean, they're going to start. We can't prevent them from starting. Well, we could. We could, you know, uh, strap bombs to ourselves and go into the Oh, God. This is yeah. dark moments in this podcast. <laughs> I mean, let's... you know, at least I didn't light anyone on fire. No, you didn't. I, yeah, I feel good about that. Uh, let's see. Uh, Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter, well, let me, let me can open it like this. It seems like one of the challenges for uh, someone or someone who writes for Fangraphs, for example, one of the challenges with regard to Derek Jeter is writing about Derek Jeter in a way that uh, in a way that is uncovering a something of of note. Uh, Derek Jeter has been thoroughly covered throughout yes. his career. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, for example, uh, people um, w- with whom I've been associating recently, they know kind of what I do. They they think I, I'm more important than I am. And uh, so they're deceived in that way. They'll also say, uh, oh, Jeter, uh, last couple games of his career – I assume you're writing about it, and I say, "Oh, I don't know. That's a bad assumption because I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know what to say." You, you found some ways. You, I think you and Jeff both, uh, you uh, address the fact, perhaps, that he is also uh, that he was a, just a good hitter naturally. Yeah. Not just for shortstop, but he's been a good hitter. Yeah. Or a good offensive player, I think, because you probably include base running in that as well. Correct, and I think that was kind of the. I think there's. There's a polarization around Jeter that the the media worship of Jeter is so over the top that any backlash is normal. I mean, uh, it's hard to take the the at face value that what we're told as a, a baseball watching public about Derek Jeter and then uh, try and line them up with the facts of what we know about him as a player and uh, balance them out. I mean, the the amount of praise he gets is uh, ridiculous compared to what he actually is. But I think the reaction has gone too far, where uh, you know a decent amount of somewhat credible sabermetric people have discounted the fact that Jeter uh, should have ever played shortstop when you know he's not a good defensive shortstop, but he was able to play the position for 15 to 20 years at a level that was not embarrassing. I mean, he wasn't good at it, but he you know he at least held his own <laughs> for 20 years at the most important defensive position on the field. And then you know uh, there's uh, I think maybe a push towards overvaluing home runs and walks in the sabermetric community, and there has been for quite a while, and Jeter does not do either of these things. So we diminish, you know, the fact that he got 3,000 singles or 2,800 singles or however many singles he got in his career. A lot of singles can make up for not hitting home runs or drawing walks. Uh, and I think if we actually try and evaluate Jeter uh, as a hitter and as a fielder overall and not by a reaction to the kind of overbearing uh, too much love that he gets from the traditional media, we find out that he's actually a good hitter and he was an average fielder and uh, he was remarkably healthy for a really long time. And when you have an above average hitter and an average fielder for 20 years, you have a Hall of Fame player and one of the best players of all time. Yeah. All right. Congratulations, Derek Jeter. Yeah. You had a good career. Good job. You yeah. really did it. And you probably have, will find some, um, hopefully you'll find some things to keep you occupied in uh, your, after your career. I would imagine we were not going to go too too long before Derek Jeter is a prominent analyst on Fox. You think so? I I can't imagine 
how much money the TV producers are going to throw at him to say, come be on TV and smile and talk about leadership and grit and clutchness, and we will give you all of our cash. I feel like uh, I feel like I have not really heard Derek Jeter speak for maybe more than th- three sentences. So I not, think he, not he's this, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. He's notoriously boring in interviews on purpose, and I think uh, this is one of the things that has made him kind of this bland. Uh, personality is he doesn't say anything interesting, and he does it to avoid the spotlight. He doesn't want to be in the headlines any more than he has to be, at least not for things he's saying uh, or, you know, making some kind of outrageous comment that can get devoid, you know, can get broken apart on talk radio. Uh, but I think, you know, if uh, Fox came and said, hey, we want you to fill the A.J. Pierzynski role, you don't have to be an in-studio or you don't have to be an in-game analyst. You don't have to be a play-by-play guy. But just show up for the pregame and the postgame, smile, Say Derek Jeter things. We'll show a cop. We'll show highlights of the flip, and you can talk about how what it means to keep your head in the game. And you can say boring things for five minutes before the game and five minutes after the game, and we'll give you thirty billion dollars. I, I think he'll say yes. Thirty billion. That's quite a lot. It must a lot. be the it's a lot of dollars. Uh, gross domestic product of a number of countries. Uh, probably. Yeah. M- maybe more. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Uh, well, you're closing in on having fulfilled your obligation. I, one thing that I, I wanted to ask you about, though, was the uh, oh, the Moneyball viewing in Rochester, New York. Yeah. Did you? Oh, are you back? You're back, I assume. I am back. It was Thursday and Friday. I was okay. In, yeah. I was in New York. Yeah. So you were invited, and I think you, what you were part of a of a small panel also with a, a member of um, the Buffalo Sabers. Correct. Uh, Steve Pinata. He's a not not like pinata like the yeah. hit with a bat but maybe like an italian version of that word uh yeah he's actually a graduate of john fisher college which is the college that was putting this on uh and uh he works for the buffalo sabers as a technology guy so he's basically their stats guy and i talked with him a decent amount cuz i'm not a big hockey fan i don't know hockey all that well and so it was interesting to hear him talking about their data issues and how he is uh for the first time basically coding all of their games live uh, and trying to uh, kind of record their own statistics for their own team uh, and how that's going to be a really valuable resource for them, they believe, except for the fact that they don't have any baselines because no one else is tracking this for any of the other teams, at least not the, you know, if the other teams are tracking it, they're not giving it to the Buffalo Sabres. Uh, so it's kind of like if someone did like pitch effects tracking for just one stadium, it would be neat and also incomplete and frustrating. Yeah, it would be. Yeah. Huh. So, uh, but then it went right. You 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 got a chance to see Moneyball again. I did get a chance to see Moneyball again. Uh, I think the third or fourth time I've seen it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still entertaining and hilariously wrong in a lot of parts. I, I don't think I'll ever get over uh, the Billy Bean flying to Cleveland to try and trade for Ricardo Rincon. Like I I get that it was a movie and they needed to have like people on screen together, but that was a ridiculous scene. What, he'd probably do that by phone normally. I I mean, you know, even later in the movie, they're making trades by phone. I'm not sure why. I mean, I guess he had to meet Paul DePodesta, whose uh, character was called Peter Brandt in the movie, and Depot did work for Cleveland. So maybe they set that up as like a, how does Billy Bean get to know Paul DePodesta? Uh, but, you know, hey, I'm going to fly to Cleveland because I'm broke and I need money, and I'm going to try and trade for Ricardo Rincone. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, a, a weird scene yeah. in the movie. Was it uh, pleasant to uh, 
Have you, have you done these sort of speaking things before with college-age students or something? Yeah, like I have. There's usually colleges closer to me, uh, like Elon University asked me to come last year and speak to them. And uh, So I've done some of the stuff locally. This is the first time that some uh, well-to-do private college uh, has, has funded my, my travel, but uh, I was happy to take a trip to the, the very pleasant city of Rochester, which I enjoyed a decent amount uh, for my 24 hours there and, and uh, do some talking about baseball things it was mm-hmm. kind of fun yeah and it was a little it was also a little strange to be in new york on the night of jeter's last home game distracting baseball fans from jeter's last home game right by showing them a movie about the a's <laughs> yeah right it was like <laughs> hey baseball fans don't and you know new york baseball fans don't watch Derek jeter's final game in yankee stadium yeah. come talk to this guy from Fangraphs instead yeah. Yeah. you know the well, timing uh, was uh was interesting but obviously not easy to predict out of that right so you left everyone disappointed is what you're trying to say. As usual, yeah. Yeah, as usual. All right, well... The, the uh, same feeling podcast listeners have every week. Yeah, yeah. well, that, that's a feeling that they'll uh, start having soon uh, because it looks like uh, we've done it here. Oh, I was going to mention one thing. We're, we're going... I, I'm uh, compiling the fr- free agent list. Yes. Because uh, we're going to begin crowdsourcing pretty soon, I believe. We are. Yeah. A lot of... Uh, I noticed uh, quite a few of uh, the way the short stops are available. Yeah, but not any good ones. Oh. Wait, no? Wait. Oh, I thought that's the whole point I was making. Oh. Well, no, there are lots of, like, mediocre old shortstops, right? Oh, J.J. Hardy? Yeah, mediocre and old. Oh, Jed Lowry? Mediocre and old. Estrubal Cabrera? Mediocre and old. Uh, and then ha- kind of Hanley Ramirez? Uh, not really a shortstop. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's what I thought about. Yeah. But there's some players out there. There's some Pablo right, Sandoval. Yeah. Did you know Pablo Sandoval? I do know Pablo Sandoval. Do you he's know gonna he's... be. A, I think like the third base crop this year, if you include Hanley Ramirez as a third baseman, which I think most teams signing him are going to at least think of him as a third baseman within a year or two, if mm-hmm. not next year. Uh, the third base crop is fascinating. Sandoval, Chase Headley, Hanley Ramirez, at their peak, all of them are very good all-star caliber players, and all of them could easily be nothing. Did you say Ramos Ramirez, too? I did not say Ramos Ramirez. He's on the older side, but probably... Uh, in that mix as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he is on. Yeah, he is on the other side. Yeah. yeah, good. Well, well, well pointed out, Dave Cameron. Yeah, no, third base, fascinating. fascinating I'm looking yeah. forward to your third base crowdsourcing post. Yeah. Uh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll have that out. We won't miss uh, uh, Johnny Peralta this year. Uh, we can't miss Johnny Peralta because he's not a free agent. But right. But don't miss anyone like Johnny. Peralta. The equivalent of Johnny right. Peralta. Yeah. Well, I will allow you to look over the list, Dave okay. Cameron. Yes. And then I uh, will. I will try to. Uh, be more perfect. And then player of the year? We're, yeah, it's a thing. We're starting. We're. Um, am I allowed to divulge that I, I received my ballot from you? You did receive your ballot. Yeah. That is about all you're allowed to divulge. Okay. Yeah, all right. And then, uh, but I can publish it after afterwards, right? Not like after the vote is announced. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Not after you vote on it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm not gonna. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Okay. I think you're done. Good. Yeah. Thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. That is managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.